main activist. Some people in town say the base is run by aliens working with our federal government to conduct mind control and genetic experiments. I'm leaving. I'm glad. Thanks a lot, society, for railroading my ass. Hello, how's everyone doing? I don't know how to start today. Hello, everyone. <laughs> we will oh, we will get better at this. This One is day. the Eerie Americas. This is Vicky Ayala. And I'm Christy Hall. What's up, people? I don't know. This week, a uh, little bit of a doozy. I feel like Every it's, week is a doozy. Like you said before, like today feels like Wednesday and it's it not does. Wednesday. I have like weekday anxiety, even though it's Friday night. I guess because this week went by quickly, even though it was stressful. It's still, I'm, I'm still on that, like, gotta be at work, gotta be keep going. Yeah, like, I feel like I have to wake up and go to work tomorrow, and I'm dreading it, but I'm like, I don't have to go to work I, tomorrow. Yeah, I have the next day dread for no reason, so I have to just, like, remind myself and put myself in, like, Friday mode. I went online today, and, like, I put on our Twitter account, because on Instagram, I follow this really great office page, and this person always posts awesome memes, and so I, po- I reposted it on Twitter, and it was, like, the Friday feeling, and they just took snippets of Michael Scott at different times from <laughs> like five o'clock, six o three, and he's like, It's Britney, bitch. It just basically showed the Friday night phases, and I'm like, Right, it's Friday. Everyone's celebrating. It's Friday. I'm, it is Friday night. I have to be happy about that. And it's also two celebrations coming up in the same day. The 5th of May this month is not only Cinco de Mayo, which is not a big deal to most Mexicans, but to Americans it is, but it's also the first day of Ramadan. So I want to shout out to all my Muslim friends. I hope the Ramadan goes well. This Have an easy fast, I hope. Yeah, man. Vicky and I decided to do something for Lent. So our obviously it's not anything comparatively to Ramadan, but for Lent we gave things up. It wasn't quite a fast, but it was tough for us. So I can't And I've actually imagine. done Ramadan before and it was the fucking worst thing ever and I totally give you props cuz you guys go to work. I've seen you guys go to the gym and I had one of my friends who's Muslim and she's like, "What are your tips on fasting during Ramadan?" And my answer to her was, "You just don't." <laughs> don't. You're already fasting. So don't don't go to the gym. What are you going to the gym for? 100%. <laughs> um, yeah. So just Props to everybody who's asking for the next month. Um, totally. And I couldn't so, do it. No way. Not at all. And also, we were celebrating the much-anticipated Ted Bundy film. Oh, yeah. And uh, with Zac Efron. And we started watching it. And, you know, I hate to be this person. I told you guys ahead of time that I hate everything. I expected Vicky to love it and for me to hate it. And the verdict is 45 minutes in. There is not a sink. There's barely a mention of a murder. There's not a single crime scene. There's not a single fact. It's all just him back and forth between his ex-fiance and him for 45 minutes. They're both smoking hot. I'll give them that. But I... It just wasn't convincing. I couldn't get through it. We were just like, let's just start recording because this is just not worth it. We tried. We were going to watch the whole thing and totally come on here and tell you guys that we loved it. And... I know that this is based off of the book and I get that it was supposed to be about the relationship, but she's also the one that turned him in. So I was waiting for it to be like, what made you suspect it was him? What was going through your mind? What was your relationship really like? And there was barely any in-depth anything. It was just going from one scene to the next and it's all stuff we knew already. I already knew how he escaped. I already knew all that. I want to know more about this relationship. I want to know more about what made you suspect that it was him, what it was like to be the one to call his name in. None of that happened. Right. I didn't feel any of the anticipation that I had expected, which is like... I wanted to feel like how she must have felt and I didn't connect that way. And that's what bothered me. And like, this is my big issue with Netflix in general. The Ted Bundy's confessional tapes blew up so much that I think they kind of ran with that. And sometimes they get this ego trip where they think they can just like shit gold and they don't have to really put forth any effort as long as they have a good lineup of cast right they just like they have famous people director, and they right. put ted bundy on it and everybody's gonna watch it which is true because everyone's gonna watch this because it's zach efron and but you're still gonna have to live with the reviews and like how people like the taste that you leave in people's mouth afterwards and like we are obviously whatever you want to call us crime obsessed vicky and i bonded over ted bundy years ago so that was one of our first serial killers we know this case back and forth like we know his profile we know who he is There is nothing that I didn't learn from this movie. The better movie to watch is Bundy, who was in it again, the actor. It was no Zac Efron level. But I think that's what the appeal is behind it. I think that sometimes when you have someone so famous that it brings this certain 
thing to the movie when you have lesser known actors it becomes more about the character it becomes more about the acting all this was was me staring at the screen going oh this is Zac Efron dressed like Ted Bundy it just it didn't work for me and I really wanted to like it but I just didn't and maybe if I eventually try to get past the first 45 minutes but 45 minutes in we're like yeah this is boring yeah so it's called Bundy 2002 the director's name is Matthew Bright so that was a way better film it was more accurate it was For people that actually want to know about Ted Bundy's crimes and like how he helped kind of set up this serial killer profile because as most of us know, Ted Bundy is considered the first serial killer. He kind of helped coin the phrase. The 2002 Bundy is that they still put Liz as part of a major character in this. Sorry, Zach, I love you and think you're smoking hot like the rest of the planet. And, and we're not going to lie, we said he got, the outfits were on point. He yes. really did look like him. But again, you're Zac Efron. So all I'm seeing is Zac Efron is Ted Bundy. I'm like, oh, he got the clothes. Like, it just, it, it didn't work for me. I couldn't do it. I just yeah. kept thinking Zac Efron in So my head. it may work for people that don't care about the details of that and just find the whole case fascinating. But for people that, like us, that are very detail-oriented and that really want to know what it was really about and what the feeling was like, I want to feel the sensation of and the tension that it must have felt like. Right, and, like even if you weren't going to show the actual murders, that's fine, but I want to know from her point of view what it was like being with this person that you thought was responsible for these murders and these things and what it must have felt like to be that torn and watch him, what it must have felt like to have to be the one to turn him in. What was that turmoil like? I didn't get any of it. Where was that? 45 minutes in, we should already have seen something with her and what led up to her turning him in. And it was it was just not what I expected. But everybody should still try to check it out, I guess. And yeah, give opinions. Get, get your own opinion. Everyone's going to feel differently about things. Whatever. It is what it is. Anyway, in lieu of a email, I found something on this website that I love to frequent and check out when I am trying to escape the real office life world. Over at phantomsandmonsters.com, there was this article, or email rather, I thought was really, really cool and interesting, and I wanted to share it. I was born on the evening of June 24th, 1975 in NYC, one month prematurely while my parents were there visiting my mother's family in various East Coast locations from our home in St. Louis, Missouri. In 2015, a friend of mine took me to New Orleans for a few days prior to my birthday as a gift. We had a great time and had tickets to fly home in the early afternoon on my birthday. The flight out of Louis Armstrong Airport was uneventful except for two things. The first was an older guy sitting beside us who kept looking our way. He had what I can only describe as a gentle smile on his face. I didn't feel creeped out so much, but it was weird just to have him spend so much time looking our way in silence. The next thing was when we started to descend for landing. The plane started to shake and jolt terribly. My buddy and I looked at each other with that oh fuck expression. I know exactly oh, what yeah. he meant. I glanced past my friend and caught the eye of the man sitting across the aisle. He was looking straight at me with that grin still on his face. He leaned out from his seat towards ours and said very calmly in a firm tone, this one will land just fine, then turned his head and looked forward. That gentle smile never left his face. From there, the ride got really rough, but the plane landed just fine. The pilot came on the intercom and quickly explained that it was some pretty bad wind shear, gave us a weather update, and thanked us for flying. Everyone on the plane was so stressed, I swear I could smell the fear. As soon as we got our carry-ons out of the overheads, I made a point to not even glance at that dude, but I can feel him looking at me. We got off and hustled our asses on out of there. Nobody was saying a word. We were all still freaking out. Here is where it gets creepy. Last year, I was reading about air disasters. That experience had stuck with me and I developed a bit of an obsession. One day, I came across the story of Eastern Airlines Flight 66. The flight left New Orleans in the afternoon of June 24, 1975, en route to JFK in NYC. The plane crashed on descent due to severe wind shear killing 113 people just hours before I was born, 40 years to the day from my flight with the man and his gentle grin. That's, that's really creepy. I don't even know what to say. 
That's really creepy. <laughs> That's all I can say about yeah. it. Yeah. No, I thought that was a really crazy one. I was like, wow, was he like reincarnated and like this Which was a guardian? Perfect for a segue into what I'm going to talk about today. Yeah, yeah. So this is a topic we haven't really ever hit. And like Chrissy just mentioned, it's about reincarnation, which is something that I've always kind of been fascinated with. But Same here. But I've never really looked into it much. I was just like, I wonder if there's people out there who have like really solid, firm stories. Because anybody could be like, I felt like I was from a past life. But, you know, where's your like actual proof? So I feel like I'm from several past lives. But- I feel like I did something awful in my past life. And that's why I have <laughs> such an awful time now. But I don't remember what I did. I'm sorry. And I have a completely opposite optimistic hippie side. I guess I have to accept that I'm part hippie. But I feel like you come back to life And you're tested with things you weren't tested in your previous life because there's still lessons you haven't learned. So everything you're kind of going through is something you didn't learn in your last life. So then my last life must have been super fucking easy because I swear to God, my whole life is curveballs all the time. So I must have been somebody really privileged and snobby and obnoxious. (laughs) And if that's the case, then go ahead and throw them on because I I don't want to be snobby and obnoxious. Um, but before I get into like, act, I'm going to talk about a few stories, but I wanted to get into actual reincarnation in itself. And basically, I know people describe it as one thing, but there are different memories and things that the, the way you describe it. Countless people around the world claim to experience reincarnation memories and, you know, other phenomena related to reincarnation. And these memories and related circumstances for the people who actually experience them are just as real as things that are happening in your current life. And so... It's basically where do these past memories come from? And there is evidence that at least some and possibly all people have existed in another body and lived another existence. When quote unquote memories appear as personal recollections, those who experience them tend to believe that they're stemming from their previous life. So the spirit or soul of an individual doesn't necessarily migrate to another individual. Mm -hmm. There are Buddhist teachings that, for example, tell us that the soul or spirit doesn't always reincarnate on the earthly plane and in human form. It may not reincarnate at all, and it may evolve into a spiritual domain from where it either does not return or returns only to fulfill a task to, you know, that to accomplish from the preceding and reincarnation, which is like the point that you brought up. It's something that wasn't fulfilled last time, so they're going to fulfill it this time, this life. But what concerns us here is a possibility that reincarnation could truly occur. And can the consciousness that was once the consciousness of a living person reappear in the consciousness of another? And I have like a quote that I found when I was researching that that basically states, for years, the theory of reincarnation was a nightmare to me. And I did my best to disprove it and even argued with my trans subjects to the effect that they were talking nonsense. Yet as the years went by, one subject after another told me the same story in spite of different and varied conscious beliefs. Now well over a thousand cases have been so investigated and I have to admit that there is a such thing as reincarnation. And while I had a hard time finding the actual name of the person who said it, it was someone who was a doctor and was researching reincarnation and had to just admit that it might be possible. Now there are, there's a lot of uh, belief systems and schools of thought when it comes to reincarnation stories and they range any, and just like an explanation to it. Cause of course we always need an explanation for something. We can never leave anything as unexplained. Of course. And all of the theories range from made up fantasies, wishful thinking to the human brain, piecing together a storyline to describe a certain life situation. But there are scholars and trained PhD psychologists who have devoted their life research to reincarnation and have verified thousands of cases as explainable in no other known form as reincarnation. So there are different variables when it comes to reincarnation. One of the most important ones, and you'll see this from the examples that I'm going to give you, is the age of the person who has the reincarnation type experience. Most of those that have these reincarnation types and remember them are children between the ages of two and six. And for some reason, after the age of eight, the experiences tend to fade with, you know, a few exceptions. And it kind of makes sense to me because think about it. If you are young and you've had less time on this realm as the person you know yourself as currently, you're going to have more memories of the things that previously happened. But as day by day goes by and you start to become this new person, you're going to forget more of your past so right. it's, it's always kind of made sense to me. Plus, I think it's also that idea of that children being like open. They're just that's what I was going to say. They're completely more open to it. They're 
they're free of a lot of other we were as adults we have so many things to think about and I feel like that's why we tend to forget so many other things but it's like as a child what else do you have to think about but what you're doing in that moment I feel like they're just more open they have less things clouding their anything so mm-hmm. they're a lot more open to it which is why most of them are so young and then once they hit eight which is when you start really learning things in school and really start developing your own personality that's when they tend to that's when the memories tend to fade and a lot of times vanish completely as they get older and the other variable is the manner in which the reincarnated personality died those who suffered a violent death seem to be more frequently reincarnated than those who died in a natural way again going with the theory of maybe something wasn't completed in your life you died a violent death and you need to complete something in this life you know if you live this full life where you died of natural causes what would be the reason in you having to reincarnate into another body so with that i'm gonna get into my first reincarnation story which is a patrick christensen and his brother one this is one case offering substantial reincarnation proof patrick christensen was born in michigan in march of 1991 his older brother kevin had died of cancer 12 years earlier at the age of two Early evidence of Kevin's cancer was presented six months prior to his death when he began to walk and had a noticeable limp. One day he fell and broke his leg. Tests were done and after a biopsy on a small nodule in his scalp just above his right ear, it was discovered that little Kevin had metastatic cancer. Soon tumors were found growing in other locations in his body. One such growth caused his eye to protrude and eventually resulted in blindness in that eye. Kevin was given chemotherapy, which resulted in scars on the right-hand side of his neck, and he eventually died of his illness three weeks before his second birthday. At birth, Patrick had a slanting birthmark with the appearance of a small cut on the right side of his neck, exactly the same location as Kevin's chemotherapy scar, which was the first evidence of reincarnation. He also had a nodule on his scalp just above his right ear and a clouding of his left eye, which was diagnosed as corneal leukoma. When he began to walk, it was with a distinct limp, again offering more proof of reincarnation. When he was almost four and a half, he said to his mother that he wanted to go back to his old orange and brown house. This was the exact coloring of the house in which the family had lived in 1979 when Kevin was alive. He then asked if she remembered him having surgery. She replied that she could not remember this because it never happened to him. Patrick then pointed to a place just above his right ear. He added that he didn't remember the actual operation because he was asleep. This was Kevin's operation. This never happened to Patrick. Interesting that even before the age of two, he would even recall that as Kevin. So that's very, very And crazy. one of the things is this isn't just, at this point, this isn't just memories. He's got like scars and birthmarks that mm-hmm. go along with what happened to his brother. So sometimes the proof is just unexplainable. It's right. like, what would, is it a coincidence? Maybe, but I don't know if that I necessarily believe in coincidences. I believe mm-hmm. things happen. I don't think th- this is too many coincidences right. for me. Absolutely. If you had like one scar and you just happen to have the scar, all right, but you recalled the house that you didn't live in, that your parents never told you about because you're so young. You started walking. Nobody teaches their kids to walk with a limp. Why would you start walking with the limp the way yeah. your brother did? Yeah. So that's a, like one example of a young person. Their brother obviously died not in a natural way because it's not natural for a two-year-old to die and reincarnated into his brother. And I'm going to go right into my second case, which is another child. His name was Gus Taylor. He was 18 months old when things started popping up. This one seems a little bit different. Like a lot of these are family member reincarnation. So this one, Gus actually remembers his past life as his own grandfather. His name is Gus Taylor and his grandfather's name was August. So he was named after him. At the age of one and a half, as his diaper was being changed by his father, he looked up and said, you know, when I was your age, I used to change your diaper. That's amazing. His father had a pretty humorous response, remarking, whoa, this is weird. Whenever his family would talk about his grandpa, Gus always had a very clear insistence that they were talking about him. Later on, he would disclose details about his grandfather's life that were completely accurate. He said that his grandfather's sister had been murdered and that his grandmother had made milkshakes for his grandfather using a food processor. And Gus's parents were adamant that none of these subjects had ever been discussed in his presence. His mom still didn't believe it, so she started testing him. She, was, she showed him a group of old family pictures and spread them out on the table. Gus immediately identifies his grandfather and goes, that's me. In an attempt to test him again, he, she then selected a pic, an old photograph of his grandfather when he was a young and in school right and it's like a class picture and showed it to gus 
there were 16 other young boys in the photograph. And again, his grandfather's young. So she's like, all right, he's really going to, yeah, there's no way for him to know. 16 young kids. Exactly. going to tell the difference? He pointed right to his grandfather and said, there I am. So she corrected him and said, no, that is your grandfather. He goes, no, that's me. One day, his father found an old family photo album while cleaning out the house. And as explained by Gus's parents, he had never seen these photographs either. So Gus opens up the album, begins to look at the pictures, points to a picture of a car and says, that's my car. Still not believing, his mother asked him, okay, so recall something from your past life. So that's when Gus then told her someone had turned his sister into a fish. His mother, surprised, asked who he was talking about. And he said, the bad men. Surprisingly, Gus was talking about his grandfather's sister who was murdered and the body was thrown in the San Francisco Bay. But Gus's father said he had never told Gus this story because the family never talked about it since it was such a traumatic event. And that was so long ago. And it was so long ago. How would he know that? So this is another story that's truly unique in that his grandfather actually died a year before he was born. So he basically seemingly came right back. Normally you hear about these stories and it's about someone like the last one, his brother had died 12 full years, but his fa- grandfather died a year before he was born and like just reincarnated and right back. And I've heard reincarnation stories before, but I find it interesting that they go back to the same family because I've heard other people coming as different people and remembering other lives, but to go back to the same family is pretty insane. This is a story of James Leninger, who was a little bit older than these kids. He was eight years old. And when he was eight years old, he started talking about aviation. He said that he had been, his parents said he had been talking about it since he was two, but he had really started with like an obsession with aviation. So his parents didn't really know anything about it. And they were kind of amazed that their kid was like, had such an extensive knowledge of planes. And of course, as a parent, you probably think your kid is a genius and he knows all this about planes. He's so smart. smart And I know nothing. So Bruce, his father's name is Bruce, and he recalls that his son was memorized with planes at the museum because they took him to the museum to look at planes. And he kept wandering back to the same section of the museum, which is the World War II section. When his father tried to take James away from the exhibit after being there for nearly three hours, James put up a big fuss and started to cry. So to satisfy his curiosity and calm him down, he bought him a Navy Blue Angels flight demonstration videotape, and he played it so much that he practically wore it out. <laughs> James's parents, Bruce and Andrea, say that they began they said they began to see signs of a spirit linked with their son when he was just 20 months old. While moving from Richardson, Texas to Lafayette in February of 2000, Bruce, Bruce took James to the Cavanaugh Flight Museum in Addison, Texas. His mother Andrea said planes had always been his fixation and he would spend hours playing with toy planes and he would yell when he saw a real plane in the air. And then he would draw planes and sign the pictures James 3. In April of 2000, after getting settled in their new home, James began having nightmares. At first, they thought the nightmares were just, he was in a new house, unfamiliar territory, unfamiliar sounds, but they didn't stop. And their interest in what was going on kind of took a whole new level at this point. At first, they were amazed, but then they began to get alarmed because his nightmares, he described as being shot down by a plane with the red sun on it, mm-hmm. which if you know Japan. flags, Japan's flag the nightmares were coming as often as four times a week and james would violently kick and scream with his feet up in the air and it appeared as though he was fighting with something trying to get out the only way he could escape the nightmares was for his parents to shake him awake oh poor buddy i know i feel so bad he talked about having dreams and memories of being lieutenant james mccready houston a world war ii fighter pilot from pennsylvania who had been killed in iwo jima more than 50 years earlier Andrea, his mother, said that James would scream at the top of his voice, airplane crash, on fire, can't get out, help, as he kicked and pointed to the ceiling. Meanwhile, the furniture suffered from James's toy plane collection because he would crash his toy planes into tables and chairs, mimicking a plane crashing. She recalls with laughter as she points to the numerous nicks on the living room table. And the table always also served as like a landing strip for his planes. But crashing became such an obsession to James that whenever someone mentioned flying, James would blurt out, plane crash, on fire. Later, James told his parents that he had flown a plane called the Corsair from a boat called the Natoma. When James's father finally decided to do some research, he, dis- he discovered that there had been a small escort carrier na- called the Natoma Bay, which had been in the Battle of Iwo Jima, and there, there really had been a, plane- a pilot called James Houston, and his plane was hit in the engine by Japanese fire on March 3rd, 1945. There's no way this kid knew that. And uh, absolutely not. There's no way. According to a psychologist at the University of Virginia, Jim Tucker, 
Houston's plane crashed exactly the way that James had described. Still, parents admitted that they kind of reacted to this the way they react to any child and that they kind of not dismissed it, but they were kind of slow to believe that this is what it was. And I, I mean, how can you deny it at that point? I, I guess know. you're just too scared to kind of realize that your kid your is kid, older than you. Right. Maybe that would freak me out. But yeah, my kid was... Your kid is older than you. So on a whim, trying to make sense of everything going on, Bruce did a simple internet search for Natoma. And the result was there existed an aircraft carrier by the name of the USS Natoma Bay stationed in the Pacific Ocean during World War II. Bruce, the father, thought it was just a coincidence. I hate that word. I hate that word too. I was just going to say that. James Houston Jr., the World War II fighter pilot, as he appeared on February 7, 1945, about one month before being killed in, in action, was part of the article that he read. And in October of 2000, another piece of the puzzle came clear. After another nightmare, James gave his parents the name of Jack Larson, and he said it was Larson who flew with him. The next month, James told his parents another piece of information, which shocked his already skeptical father, which at this point, I don't know how you're skeptical. Bruce was thumbing through a book called Battle for Iwo Jima by Derek Wright, which he had received from a history book club. While Bruce was reading the book, James jumped into his lap to watch cartoons. While waiting for the cartoons to come on, James looked at the book with his dad. Suddenly, James pointed to a map of Iwo Jima and said, Daddy, that is where my plane was shot down. Bruce said he almost killed over. Weeks later, after several more internet searches, Bruce stumbled upon a website that referred to the Natoma Bay Association. He contacted a man named Leo Pyatt, who later said he was a radio man on an Avenger fight fighter plane with the VC-81 squadron. Bruce started asking him questions. He asked if there were any Corsairs flown on the Natoma Bay. Pyatt said no, only Avengers and Wildcats. Bruce then asked if he had flown any missions near Iwo Jima. And Pyatt said he had been part of 36 missions there. Finally, Bruce got to the real question about the existence of Jack Larson. Pyatt said he knew Larson, but never knew what happened to him. After realizing so many details from his son were now realistic in nature, now Bruce is becoming obsessed with this. But his obsession isn't in finding all the proof. He's actually trying to disprove everything. Of course, he doesn't want to believe it, so he's out to kind exactly. of prove so now he, it's all a fantasy. He's obsessed with proving his little son wrong. So he starts tracking down military records from all across the nation. And his ultimate goal was to disprove these, what he called, quote unquote, coincidences. And to end the silly idea that his son was supposedly alive before. So he decided he needed to find Jack Larson. He couldn't find anything anywhere in any military records on Jack Larson. He searched every list he could find from the U.S. National Archives on the men who died who were stationed on Natoma Bay and all the carriers during World War II. There were several Larsons and Larsons who had died, but no Jack Larson of Natoma Bay. He searched for more than a year and found nothing and almost gave up. The problem was Bruce was thinking he was looking for someone who died. After attending a Natoma Bay Association reunion in September of 2002, Bruce found out that Jack Larson was alive and living in uh, Springdale, Arkansas. When he finally met up with him, that reunion actually um, unearthed a lot more important information. Not surprised, but surprised nonetheless. Right. After speaking with the veterans from the carrier and their families, never mentioning anything about his son's behavior, Bruce learned that there were 21 men who were lost from Natoma Bay. James Houston Jr. was a fighter pilot in the Pacific Theater during World War II. The carrier lost 21 men during its campaign in the Pacific, and one of those men was named James McCready Houston Jr. From the VC-81 Fighter Squadron, who was shot down at the age of 21 on a special strike mission against shipping in Futami Co. Harbor at Chichijima, according to the declassified aircraft action reports. Houston had volunteered for the mission, which is the last mission he would have flown before returning to the United States, and he was the only pilot from the Natoma Bay who was shot down. The name stuck out even more in Bruce's mind because he had noticed that James had been signing his name as James III. This was James Jr., so he was signing it as James III. Huh. Wow. And he was even saying that he was James III. Months before Bruce even found Jack Larson or any of this information on James so had always... So he considered himself Junior's J Junior. Yep, he, he already knew who he was. He knew he was James III. And so he basically was implying that he was named after... Himself. Because the guy's name was James. So he thought he was named after James. So he called himself James III. 
Which was also kind of weird that your parents name just happened to name you James. That's what I mean. I don't think that was nothing a was coincidence. a coincidence. There's a quote from the father saying, "All he ever draws are planes fighting, and he knows the type of planes. I mean, he even draws the red sun for the Japanese. But after he drew James three for the first time, I asked him why he did that, and James said, "I'm the third. I'm James three. He's been calling himself that ever since he was three years old." I think he is struggling with something unresolved or he just wouldn't be still drawing those images like a needle stuck on a record. Well, maybe he just wants you to believe him, dude. Yeah, seriously. So at this point, Bruce said he's becoming frustrated because his quest to disprove the possibility is not going well. Maybe because it's nothing to be disproved. So now he's determined to fill in the missing pieces of the puzzle. So Bruce goes all the way to Arkansas to visit Larson in September 2002 and start asking him about Houston. Larson said he couldn't remember what happened to him, but he was sure that his plane had been hit by anti-craft fire on March 3, 1945. That's the day Houston failed to return from his mission and was then pronounced missing in action. Larson had been Houston's wingman during the day's run to Chichijima. So maybe... But of course, Bruce, still hoping after all of this evidence that this was wrong, he starts vigorously checking the squadron's aircraft action records and he found that Houston was actually shot down in an FM-2 Wildcat fighter plane, not a Corsair, which was the plane that they said were the only ones who flew those missions. Oh. And no one at the reunion mentioned anything about Corsairs taking off from the Natoma Bay. But instead of taking this as other further proof, he, this actually gave him hope that this was just, and this inaccuracy was, made it was, not true. That made it all false. Despite all, all the other evidence, evidence, this one thing will discredit right. this whole thing. Mind you, wow. you're in another state talking to this guy because of all the information you found, but this one little inaccuracy is going to throw you, you off. You would think it would be the reverse, and he'd be like recording this and writing this down and wanting to make money. No, he wants to disprove it so he can say his to his three-year-old or four-year-old son, you're wrong, son. You, right, you're wrong. That's it. Wow. Just some people you're not just, my dad, dude. Right, just some people refuse to admit somebody can be different. Again, Bruce keeps on trying to find more proof, so he starts tracking down members of Houston's family. In February of 2003, he made contact with Anne Houston Barron, Houston's sister, who now lives in Los Gatos, California. (laughs) Los Gatos, sorry. That means the cats, guys. So my bad. The cats, California. Through several phone conversations, he became friends with her. And she agreed to send Bruce photos of her brother during his military service. The packages of of photos arrived in February and March of 2003. In one of the packages was a photo of Houston standing in front of a Corsair fighter plane. Wow. The same kind of plane James had mentioned over and over. According to Bruce, interviews with past servicemen and declassified U.S. military records... Before he before this battle, he was part of another elite squadron, the VF-301 Devil's Disciples from January to August of 1944. And that squadron flew Corsairs. Corsairs. So there's your proof. Your little inaccuracy wasn't completely inaccurate. So when he learned this, now all of his skepticism vanished. Finally. About time. He stated, I don't have an answer for this, so I can't explain it either. Through it all, there has to be an element of faith. There could still be the coincidence of dreaming this all up, but there are odd odd factors you have to calculate. Lightning can strike once, but when it strikes eight or nine times, you can't say it's a coincidence. No shit, sure. No shit! Because you waited for it to strike eight or nine times before you thought it wasn't a coincidence. Lesson learned. Right? Like, sometimes you need to believe people. So Bruce didn't tell Houston's sister about his son's story yet until later on, in Oct- like after she sent the photos. This was October of 2003. He finally told her about the possibility of her brother's spirit being a part of James. She said that she was stunned at first and had to let it all sink in. But then on October 15, 2003, Bruce and Andrea received a letter from her along with several of Houston's personal effects. She said that not only did she feel that James really, that she believed James's story, she thought that he should have some of James's belongings. Aw, that's so sweet. Because even she believes it, because she's not an asshole. That's so sweet. She's, well, you know what it is? It's not so much an asshole. It's the faith thing. There are so many people that I've met that say, I have to see it to believe it. And that's just who they are. They're, they're doubting Thomases, as the saying goes. So... I'm sorry, I would trust my kid to be telling me the truth. That's just me personally. Especially a kid who at this point, you haven't learned the art of telling stories or lying. And it's not like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's a little bit. And, there's, and this is 2002, 2003. I don't know what their household was like. 
There's no researching internet at age three. He didn't have a cell phone at that point. Yeah, it's not like kids now who have a phone when they're born. Like, yeah, he didn't have... He, there's even the History Channel. If that kid was History Channel obsessed, they don't have these kinds of details where they, he knows the planes, he knows the names of the people. Those are... A lot of that stuff is classified. Right, and I would understand if they were themselves obsessed with it and, like, watched this stuff. They said they knew nothing about this. Where else would he have gotten this knowledge? You think people were randomly coming to your house and talk? It's not like he just had an obsession with planes. He fixated on this specific person. So, and yes, we tend to want evidence and proof of stuff, but yeah. sometimes you have to just accept that something's unexplainable. Yeah. But even in this case, it wasn't really unexplainable. He's telling you what happened. Sometimes just, you just got to believe it. I just think James sounds like he chose his dad so that he could show his mm-hmm. dad that not everything is right. what you can see. And sometimes special things happen. And that's why she believed him. She said... And she, she, this is what she stated. She said, this child couldn't know the things he does. He just couldn't. So I believe he is somehow a part of my brother. There, These are the things you read about. There must be a reason for it, but I have no hint of what it could be. It's some phenomenon that I don't understand. It all happened nearly 60 years ago. There must be a reason. And maybe there is. And at the fact that her mentality towards that was that, I think that if the father had that mentality, there's a reason for something. She believed this was part of her brother. I agree. How else would he have known some of these things this happened it's not like the previous story where the grandfather died a year ago and you're like okay maybe he found these photos and you didn't know or maybe 60 the years family ago, talked about it and he was really receptive and right. understood everything this was 60 years ago but you know despite not ever finding out the reason for why this happened miss Barron, which is a houston sister is convinced that she is that he is somehow linked to her lost brother she now calls a six-year-old boy james three in turn he refers to miss Barron, who was 86 years old as his sister as Bruce would uncover more information about Houston without telling James about any of it, the parents noticed more about their son's action. James had three G.I. Joe dolls and named them Leon, Walter, and Billy, names of three pilots who coincidentally served with Houston. Aww. Coincidentally. So he's remembering a lot about his life, not just his crash, his friends too. So according to the U.S. Pacific Fleet records, Lieutenant Leon Stevens Connor, Walter John Devlin, and Billy Rufus Peeler were among the 21 fatalities from Natoma Bay. They were also members of the VC-81 Air Squadron with Houston. When asked why he named the dolls the way he did, Bruce said that James answered, because they greeted me when I went to heaven. After James said that, Bruce could only leave the room in stunned silence. James also explained to his father how Corsairs would frequently have flat tires and would always tend to turn to the left. After checking with military historians, the statement is verified. His mom, Andrea, recalls the first time she cooked meatloaf for James, who had never had meatloaf ever in his life. After Andrea told him that they were having meatloaf for dinner, James said he hadn't had meatloaf since he was in the Natoma Bay. So Bruce and Andrea contacted several veterans from the carrier, and they learned that meatloaf was a regular meal for the crew. After discovering the Corsair connection was real, there was one significant detail from James's dreams that needed to be explained, exactly how the plane was shot down. After another wave of nightmares, Bruce and Andrew recall how James would say his plane was shot in the engine, and he would repeatedly check and make sure fire extinguishers were available and marked wherever they went. So that's obviously something he's trying to bring into this life. He wants to make sure that this doesn't happen to anyone again. There's no fire anywhere. However, none of Houston's wingmen, Jack Larson, Bob Greenwald, or William Madsen Jr. from the VC-81 squadron saw his plane being shot down on March 3rd, 1945. Bob Greenwald, who also served at Houston as a devil's disciple, said that when the squadron realized that Houston's plane was no longer in the air, their planes took a second run to look for debris. They found nothing. With no eyewitnesses, the Leningers could only believe that Houston had been shot down near Futami Co. Harbor at Chichijima, because that's what their son said. As luck would have it, in June of 2003, another veteran would help Bruce with his research. An internet posting left by him on Natoma Bay's association website nearly a year earlier caught the attention of a veteran by the name of Jack Durham. Durham actually turned out to be a, vet, a, a member of the VC-83 Torpedo Bomber Medium Squad from the USS Sergeant Bay that had run parallel to Houston's squadron on the day that he was shot down. According to USS Natoma Bay Aircraft Action Records, the VC-81 squadron covered the, they call them the TBM squad, the other squadron, mm-hmm. they covered their runs during the Futamiko harbor strike. So without a doubt, Durham said, he saw Houston's plane being shot down by anti-aircraft fire. 
which is a fact that was then confirmed by the other aircraft's action records. So they finally got confirmation that that's the way that his plane was shot down. Wow. So he basically pumped... Uh, so Bruce pulls up more records on the bomber squad, read through their military war diaries, and then he contacted a couple of the other crew members, John Richardson, Bob Skelton, and Ralph Clarber. And they all confirmed that not only had Houston's plane been shot down, but they saw it get hit in the engine, causing an explosion in front of the plane. It then crashed into Futami, Co Harbor, the same place joined James pointed to in the history book with his father. Every detail of James's true had been verified to his parents' satisfaction, whether through eyewitness accounts, personal interviews, or military records. So now Bruce and Andrew say they are absolutely convinced that Houston's spirit has touched James. They just can't figure out why or how. This is coming from uh, B- Mrs. Bowman, who's an author and expert on metaphysical phenomena. So she's stating in James's case, he died a traumatic death as a young man. He was only 21. There was still so much emotion and energy that may have propelled these memories forward. As I see it, a part of James Houston's consciousness survived death and is part of James Leninger's soul consciousness. The present incarnation is not a carbon copy of the last, but contains aspects of James Houston's personality and experience. James continues to recall his past memories. Even today, this article was a couple of years old, but... He, st- he kept remembering these. Again, they started when he was two. And like the, the memories fade by the age of seven. At the point of this article, he was almost seven, but he was still remembering. Being that the final pieces of the puzzle were all connected and maybe this would be the it end of over. it. It, it was, was over. over. There was nothing else to say. There was really nothing else to say. He um, figured it out. He lived, he died, the, he remembered everybody. Right, the final pieces of the puzzle it. were, because again, he was missing in action. The final things that needed to be discovered were the crash site. They wanted to know if the cockpit was jammed, was jammed shut because that would explain the first, because remember he was trying to fight against something. So the only thing that they wanted to confirm was, was the cockpit Sam shut. But because of the fact that he was shot down in foreign waters and there's certain records that really were sealed. So basically that was the only thing he didn't have answered, but every other question he had was answered. Mm-hmm. And so while he might forget some of these later on in his life, and again, it wasn't a carbon copy. So it's not like this, he's the exact same person. He just has access because of his personality mm-hmm. and remembered vividly yeah, his death so and some of yeah. his life and so this was probably the one that stuck with me the most but i did want to get into one story that wasn't a child i actually found an adult story because you don't hear a lot about them and this is the story of fire chief jeffrey Keene. jeffrey Keene was an assistant fire chief in westport connecticut and after a series of events he discovered a lot of parallels between his life and the life of a civil war general named john b gordon People love using the word coincidence, but he said that the similarities went beyond coincidence. His story began in May of 1991 while on vacation with his wife. They were looking for antiques. They stopped in Sharpsburg, Maryland, where the Civil War battles of Antietam was fought. Though Keene had never read a book on the Civil War before or really had any interest in the Civil War whatsoever, he felt compelled to visit the battlefield. When walking through a field called Sunken Road, Keene said he had the following strange reaction. A wave of grief, sadness, and anger washed over me. Without warning, I was suddenly being consumed by sensations. Burning tears ran down my cheeks. It became difficult to breathe. I gasped for air as I stood transfixed in the old roadbed. To this day, I could not tell you how much time transpired, but as these feelings, this emotional overload passed, I found myself exhausted as if I had run a marathon. Crawling up to the steep embankment to get out of the road, I turned and looked back. I was a bit shaken, to say the least, and wondered at what had just taken place. It was difficult getting back to the car because I felt so weak. I did not have any answers, just questions. I would one day receive my answers, but not until more than a year later and then from the most unusual source. Now, before leaving Sharpsburg, Keen and his wife visited a gift shop where there was a Civil War magazine on the Battle of Antietam and caught his eye and he purchased it. When they returned home, he kind of filed the magazine away and he didn't look at it for a year and a half. When he finally decided to look at it, he was once again struck with a strong wave of emotions. He turned to a page that featured a picture of General John Gordon and was shocked to see himself in General Gordon's features. Keane learned that General Gordon nearly died after incurring multiple gunshot wounds at Sunken Road during the battle. Keane recalled that it was at Sunken Road that he had felt this profound experience of grief, anger, and sadness a year and a half before. After this Sunken Road experience, Keane had no idea of the series of events that was about to be put in motion. As he started uncovering more and more information on General Gordon, he discovered a lot of coincidences between himself and General Gordon. Besides the past life memories and similar physical appearance, they had the same, basically the same look, the same height, the same eye color, the same birthmarks. 
They had a lot of personality traits through the research, common life events, writing styles, habits, and even the way they were they like to stand. Both men preferred to stand with their arms crossed and arms crossed. And shockingly enough, they both had similar tastes in clothing. To this day? Yeah. <laughs> kind of weird. 15 years before he even became aware of this connection, something interesting happened. He began having a severe pain in his jaw and it kept getting worse and worse so much that he had to be driven to the emergency room where they ran tests but couldn't find the cause. Eventually, the pain just slowly subsided and completely went away. This painful event occurred on September 9th, 1977, his 30th birthday. Keen discovered that General Gordon was wounded in the face at Sunken Road. And General Gordon was 30 years old at the time. That's fucking insane. He also had three markings on his face in the same location where General Gordon was wounded as well. Under the left eye, on the forehead, and across the right cheek. Both men also had a star-shaped mark on their foreheads above the left eye. Another event that, remember I said they had similar writing styles? So it involved a written order by General Robert E. Lee on September 9th, 1862, which led to the battle where he was wounded. It actually occurred on the same day as his birthday, September 9th, but in 1947. Wow. This uh, letter going back and forth by General Gordon. And he actually, General Gordon wrote a book later on. And when you compare certain passages of General Gordon's writing and Keene's writing, they had very similar writing styles, which is kind of a weird trait to pick up on. But he said that reading the book, it seemed like he was reading something he wrote. They just had really similar thought processes. One of the things that General Gordon wrote about was, you know, he wrote about his men. He wrote about the energy they put forth. And there was something about putting out a fire in Pennsylvania. And if you remember, he's a fire chief. So he's like, this is why it seems like it's in my voice. And then Keene started having like awareness of details in Gordon's life without ever having read about them. So like as an example was that Keene went to a visitor center where there were artifacts of like um, a Confederate surrender ceremony. And it was housed where General Gordon had participated in it. And there was a picture in the visitor center that showed the like the flag that was used to surrender. And he said he just knew that this flag wasn't the right flag. He recognized the flag but it wasn't the correct flag and he actually said something to the staff and the staff said yeah that's not the right flag this flag is from a later era it's not the same flag that was used to surrender there would be no reason for him to know why there was a flag from like yeah especially if he wasn't a huge civil war buff. he There's had never no even known about that and he and keen actually believes that he's not only reincarnated but that his crew is also because he said that his fire crew seemed to strongly resemble men who fought under general gordon So he thinks that this is something called group reincarnation because when he's researching General Gordon's life, he actually found that some of the soldiers who fought under Gordon looked remarkably alike to some of the men that fought that were in the fire crew. In the fire crew. So, you know, sometimes maybe he didn't know this when he was a kid. Something, you know, maybe he did. And maybe it was one of those things where he was a kid. It wasn't touched upon. It wasn't discussed. And he lost those memories. And maybe he found out again when he was an adult. And so this was just uh, one of the stories that I found. I didn't find too many of adults, but this was... And, gr- are, and group reincarnation. That's crazy. That's... I've never heard of group reincarnation. Me either. A couple either. of those stories I had heard, but le- never I've never have heard, heard of, of group reincarnation. But can you imagine, like, you feel that you've been reincarnated. You're... We're... You know, I'm in my 30s. So imagine I find out that I think I'm reincarnated and then all my friends in this life happen or to your, be reincarnated. Or your previous friends or your previous coworkers or whatever. That's so... And they weren't even like family members. I would kind of understand family members, but these were just crew. Like his crew in the firehouse. Like to me, that that was a little crazy. So I feel like I had to mention it. Dude, bananas. Seriously. So this is That was great. Bananas. I don't even know what to say to any of this. This is so... All I know is like, you either know or you don't know. And I definitively know that this is not my first life. And I believe other people when they say the same thing. So I can... I love these stories. But let's get into something that is of... Today's era, which is in this life, idiocracy, and <laughs> I have one that's good for you today for who does that. So let's let's get into that right now. Who does that? Who does that? Who does that? Who, who does, does that? that? Via HuffPost.com, the headline reads: Pizza restaurant closed after employees put laxatives on pies. <laughs> I don't really need that because I'm lactose intolerant. But <laughs> Me too. The subtitle reads, that's a crappy thing to do. <laughs> I see what you did there. Sounds like one crappy meal. A restaurant. I didn't write that. That's literally <laughs> what it says. 
a restaurant, a pizza restaurant in Springtown, Texas, had to close this week after it was discovered that employees had put laxatives on at least one pie. On Friday night, the Springtown Police Department got a call about possible food tampering at a Mr. Jim's Pizza location. Apparently, one of the employees... First of all, let me go back. Mr. Jim's Pizza sounds like a terrible... It's, that's a terrible name for a pizzeria. It's a t- like, I'm sorry, we're from Brooklyn. That's So we're super high maintenance with our pizzas. And we don't, we're don't we dairy-free, and we still think that's it's awful. Name. I would not go to a pizzeria by that name. Even it's just- before I was not allergic to cheese, I would have never gone to a place called Mr. Jim's Pizza. But anyway... Apparently, one of the employees posted on social media that they were putting Miralax, a brand of laxatives, on pizza, according to Dallas Fox affiliate KDFWTV. Authorities said three employees admitted putting the laxative on at least one pizza that ended up being eaten unknowingly by a co-worker, according to an NBC affiliate. The employee who ate the pranked pizza got sick, but the people who made the pizzas undenied putting laxatives on any of the pizzas purchased by the public. Yeah. Uh, right, right, right. You did it this one time, and yeah. it went to your coworker, and then you got yeah. caught. That totally is how like, it works. Like an asshole or a bastard didn't walk through, piss you off, and you didn't do that like you did to your pranking your coworker. Yeah, okay. The city's health inspector pulled the business health permit, thank God, yes, and please. shut down the restaurant until an inspection scheduled for Monday, according to Fort Worth Star-Telegram. As of Monday afternoon which was April 29th, it remained unopened. Police have not said whether any criminal charges will be filed. Mr. Jim's Pizza sent a statement to HuffPost saying that the employees who are involved in this prank have been terminated. I would, I would think so. so. I mean, first of all, your store's not even open. And second of all, <laughs> please fire them. Thanks. I wonder what happened to the employee that ate it, though. I hope he still has his job. It would have been an awesome prank if you were, like, buying a pizza for a friend and you wanted to make a joke, but you work at this place. You have to be careful with fucking with people's food. Like, that's just how it is. You never know. It made the news. Like, that goes to show you how serious this could be. And, like, again, no one believes you only did this to one pie. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure the reason one of the reasons that it's still closed is probably because people are like, oh, shit, I ate pizza from here and I got deathly ill. Uh, I'm calling bullshit on that one for sure. Definitely going to call bullshit on it. But good prank, I guess. I mean, I, was it worth losing your job? I don't know. But um, yeah, I know it definitely wasn't worth it for the owner who has to get an inspection <laughs> and shut down for a few weeks. That sucks. For- <laughs> but while you're at it, can you think of maybe changing the name of your pizzeria? I don't know if that's a, like we're other than Domino's and like. Little Caesars, as I used to call it, Sleezers. I um, <laughs> I don't know a lot of chains, so maybe it's a chain for all we know. We are we don't know. We're we're Brooklynites. We are super swell. When it comes we to our I'm very pretentious about my pizza. Yeah, I and I would challenge anybody from Chicago to tell me their pizza is better. Or I've San had, Diego. Have I've you heard San Diego is the new. Co- there is no way pizza? that your pizza is better in San Diego. And I've had Chicago pizza. Our pizza is still better. Fight me, bro. Like it's not better than New York's. And it's not, not just that too. One slice. I hate when you have to eat with a knife, fork, and knife. That's right. Not that's what not. You're supposed to hold for. it and fold it and eat it. That yeah. is how you eat the pizza. It's not meant to be heavy. It's not meant to be eaten with a knife and fork. It's not even meant to fill you. Pizza's just supposed to make you feel happy. It doesn't even make me full. Deep dish should get laxative. Yeah, that's right. I'm gonna say it. Yes, exactly. Because that pizza's bullshit and it's not real pizza. Uh, your pizza's not supposed to be a full meal. It's supposed to be a slice that you can. You're supposed to be able to eat it while walking. That is the whole while point. While walking to the train. While on the phone, while listening to music. It is that a portable is food. For. So the minute you need to sit there with a plate with heavy ass pizza in your hand, you're not doing it right. Okay? Yeah, you're fucking up. Thank you so much for listening again, guys. I hope you enjoyed our episode. Please feel free to shout us out on social media. Please like us, subscribe us, wherever Leave us you are a listening. Review. Write us emails at theeerieamericas at gmail.com. We love hearing stories and whatever else you want to tell us. If you have a suggestion for a case, email us or go on our website and there is a suggest a case section. Thank you guys so much for listening. Stay weird, Americas. Bye. Bye.